0: Got your Bibles, we are in this study, and I hope you've enjoyed it, uh, diving into this book, uh, this book of Jude. And uh, as, as you're turning there, in case you haven't been with us, the kind of the heart of the book is found in verse 3, this idea that we should earnestly contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. And the reason is, and and then we looked at kind of verses 4 to 7 there, is false teachers, false teachers who come. And there's two things he tells us about the false teachers. Number one, they're ungodly. Number two, they're going to face judgment. Now, one of the things that we've seen is what... Jude likes to do as he moves ahead in his book is always to kind of circle back around. So as we got to verses 8 through 13, he kind of took that first part that they're ungodly, and he began to talk about their ungodliness and how it played itself out. In fact, if you remember in verses 12 and 13, he gives those six little pictures, uh, parables, if you were, of these people. He talks about them being uh, hidden reefs that, you know, destroy boats. He he talks about them being uncaring shepherds. He talks about them being uh, waterless clouds that have the promise of rain but never deliver. Uh, A shooting star, something that you can never count on. Today, in verses 14 to 16 now, he is going to circle back to this idea that they're going to face judgment, that that it's coming. And so let's read it together. I'll read out loud if you'll follow along. Verse 14. It was also about these men, the Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying... Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all, to convict all of the ungodly, uh, or to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, Finding fault, following their own lust. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gain, uh, for gaining an advantage. So, the first thing you kind of come to this is the question of, he talks about Enoch's prophecy. Now, first question, of course, is who on God's green earth is Enoch? So, we, we read about Enoch in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 5, Enoch, and what we find out about Enoch is he's a godly man, and he was in that godly line of Seth. So if you're not familiar with the book of Genesis, let me maybe just break it down for you real quick. You know, chapters 1 and 2, we have the creation of the world and man. Chapter 3, we have the fall. Chapter 4, you have Cain now, the result of sin, kills his brother, And you begin to see how sin is spreading out. Then you have the line of Cain and all these little comments, again, how sin is coming in. You get polygamy and all of this. Then in chapter 5, it starts with the fact that Adam and Eve, uh, God blessed them with another son. His name was Seth. Seth was really kind of replace. Abel, who had been killed by his brother Cain. Seth is the godly line, ultimately going to lead to a man by the name of Noah, right, who is righteous. And it's through Noah that God is going to save the world. And so in Genesis 5, you have this godly line of Seth. So it starts with Adam. When you get to the seventh guy, guess who you meet? Enoch. Right? This is what it said. Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. You all know who Methuselah is. Oldest recorded living person ever. 969 years. I would say he f- lived a full life, right? The other interesting thing about Methuselah, Methuselah is the grandfather of Noah. And when you put the timeline together, as is laid out in Genesis chapter 5, Methuselah actually dies in the year that the flood comes. So he kind of of right up to there, and that's why he he wasn't on the ark. So we got Enoch, right? So Enoch lived 65 years. But here's, here's where it gets interesting. The next verse says this, Then Enoch walked with God. 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters, so all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Now there's two things there that are unique, because if you read Genesis 5, it's kind of a pattern, right? Uh, so-and-so was born, and when they were such an age, they had a son, and they had other sons and daughter, and then they lived another, and they died at that ripe age. This is the only one, he adds the expression, they walk with God. Enoch walked with God. The other thing that's unique is that he only lived 365 years. So we talked about Methuselah. Pretty much everybody in this lineage lives to be over 900 years old. If If you die in your 800, man, you died in young. And yet Enoch, 365 Next verse gives us a little insight. Enoch walked with God. He says it again. And he was not for God took him. Now what, what does that mean? Well, the writer in Hebrews gives us a little insight. It says this, by faith, remember Hebrews 11, the faith chapter, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness to before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. So here's the idea. Enoch was a godly man. He, was a, he walked with God. And so God decided not to leave him for death, but to take him up. He's one of two people in the entire history of the world that didn't die. The other one is... Elijah, right, he was taken up in the chariot of fire. So you have Enoch and you have Elijah. And, and what Jude is saying is that Enoch made this prophecy that judgment was going to come. Now the question, again, we got to struggle with this, where do we find that in the Bible? And the answer is we don't. In fact, I think I showed you just about every verse that mentions Enoch in the entire Bible. There might be one or two more, but it's not there. It's actually taken from a book called First Enoch that Jew quotes from, that is a well known book of history. Uh, almost the idea of the oral traditions that have been passed down through Jewish history, they had now been written down. Peter quotes from it. Uh, It was never, not even in this day, was it considered scripture? It's never been considered scripture as a part of the Old Testament or the New, but it was a a history. Now, some people say, well, why would would you quote for something that's not scripture? Well, it actually happens a lot. Uh, Paul quotes from a poet. Paul quotes, in fact, Paul makes a quote, we don't even know where he got it, where uh, bad company cr- corrupts good morals. We know it's a quote, we just don't know where it came from, right? The point is, they thought it was true, and now in the inspiration of writing their book, they used it because they knew it was well known, the readers would recognize it, and they believed it to be true. So a lot of the people that Jude is writing to have been very familiar with the book of 1 Enoch. In fact, this comes out of the very first chapter of it. We don't have the whole book. We, we just got pieces of it. But it's chapter 1, verse 9. They would have been familiar with it, but it wasn't considered scripture. But Jude believed that it was a correct, accurate quote that Enoch had given on the idea that judgment was coming. Judgment was coming. Now, what's interesting is kind of the verbiage here, behold, the Lord came, right? Past tense. But it's a prophecy. A prophecy isn't about what happened in the past. A prophecy is about what happened in the future, right? Well, the idea of this is, is that the Lord's coming in judgment is so sure it's as though it already happened. The best way I could explain it to you is you remember there in Ephesians where it says that we have been lifted up together and we have been seated together with Christ in heavenly places, right? That you and I are already seated in heavenly places in Christ, and yet we're here. Wouldn't it be good to be there today, right? But we're here. Well, yeah, but spiritually, we're already there. And the idea is, is that though it is so certain our place with him in Christ in heaven that it's though it's already taken place. Well, that's the idea here. Judgment's gonna come. And that's Jude's whole point. That's why he uses it. There is coming judgment. Coming judgment. Now, folks, the coming judgment, Final judgment of all people is a major theme in the Bible. Now, I understand that today in our culture, uh, this doesn't play well. And it doesn't. Uh, This idea, we we, you know, today we want to water this down. We kind of want to, you know, just kind of ignore it. But the truth is, this idea that someday there is going to be a judgment of all people kind of runs throughout the Bible. I mean, you think back to to Daniel. Remember God gave Nebuchadnezzar that dream of all that's going to happen in the world and, you know, the, the big statue and all. Do you remember how that ended, that there was stone not made with hands that crushes it? Judgment. Daniel chapter 7, the ancient of days, shows up. Judgment. Zechariah 14, the Messiah shows up on the Mount of Olives and his feet sp- split the Mount of Olives and now judgment comes. Uh, you get Jesus talking about the judgment that is coming when he will return, the judgment of the sheep and goats. You get to Revelation chapter 19 and you see Jesus coming back with the army, armies of heaven. And, 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 and it says that a... A sword comes out of his mouth to kill his adversaries. Judgment. You get to Revelation chapter 20. You had the great white throne judgment. And I realize it's not politically correct. And I I understand that today, you know, we want to soften this. It's almost like we want to whistle past the graveyard. But folks, culture comes and goes. Culture changes. But the word of God is true. Judgment is coming. There is a final judgment, and it is tied to return of Jesus. When Jesus returns, judgment will happen. You know, uh, you remember when we were talking about contending for the faith, and we talked about, you know, what are those components? Because we all don't agree on every little point, but what are the ones that we have to agree on to be a part of the faith? And we listed five. The fifth one is that Jesus bodily is going to return, Right? Why? Because there has to be a, just, a judgment. If he is just and he is a God of equity, then he has to come and bring justice upon, upon the earth. And one of the things that we, we've learned is that false teachers don't want to think. They don't want to preach. They want to deny this idea of coming judgment. They don't want there to be accountability. They want you to be able to live however you want. They want to, again, turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. Peter, when he, he writes his book uh, and, and talking about false teachers in 2 Peter, this is what he says that they say, that the false teachers are saying, where's the promise of his coming? You know, every day is the same. It's been the same since our fathers fell asleep. Everything continues. Now he'll mention the next verse, and they're willingly ignorant of this. They're whistling past the graveyard, the fact that God's already destroyed the earth once with a flood. And then he comes back and says, but by his word, the present heaven and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of what? Judgment and destruction of ungodly men judgment is going to come and i i don't care that it's not popular and i don't care that somehow it doesn't fit in our in our you know the way we want to think about god i mean i have a family member who who just keeps denying this idea because doesn't believe a loving God would, would, would throw people into hell. And yet, you know, tried to explain, well, wait a minute, we're the ones that rebel, we're the ones that walked away. He's done everything he can do. And if he is just, then that time of justice has to come. Now, the other interesting question it says or that we got to deal with, it says the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones. Now, what do we mean by holy ones? It could be saints. It could be us. Revelation 19 says that when Jesus returns, that we will come with him, we'll be the armies of heaven that return with him. Or it could reference angels. And I'm going to argue that probably within the context of Jude, that it probably references his angels because we see this all throughout scripture that it is a second coming when Jesus returns, his angels will be apart to execute judgment. Jesus said in Matthew 25, verse 31, He says, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. They are going to come with him to help execute judgment. And you remember that he's already talked about angels in verse 6, the angels who do not keep their own domain, about Michael in, in verse 9, the archangel. So my sense is, is that probably he's looking at these, these prophecies of that when Jesus returns, he comes with his angels, and they are going to bring judgment. Paul put it like this in 2 Thessalonians 1. And to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire. It's judgment. So judgment is coming on all the ungodly. And that's why you got to look at verse 15. I, I don't know if you picked it up the first time, but there are two words here that he uses over and over. The one is all and the other is ungodly. He uses them both four times. To execute judgment upon all, to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they had done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken. You think he was trying to make a point there? A, all... Nobody's going to skate past this one. And secondly, the ungodly. And what's, what's interesting is if you were with us last week baptism, we were talking about sin and, and what sin was. You know, sin can be a deed that we do that we shouldn't do. Uh, sin can be a word that we speak that we shouldn't speak, a, an unkind word. Uh, sin can be an attitude of our heart. Look at how he breaks it down here. To convict all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds. In fact, you skip down to verse 16 here, and it says that they're following after their own lust. So so you got the deeds. He he looks at motivation, Uh, he says, which they have done in an ungodly way, the motivation of their heart here. Notice the end of verse 16, they're flattering people for the sake, motivation of gaining an advantage. He talks about words here. They've spoken harsh things, verse 15, against God. and verse 16, he t- talks about how they speak arrogantly. Folks, this is the idea. When Jesus comes he's going to judge. And his judgment is both going to be thorough, all. All ungodly deeds, all ungodly words, all ungodly motivations, all ungodly thoughts, all ungodly attitudes. And it is going to be just. You know, we live in a world today where we struggle with this, right? Uh, people who who are falsely accused and they don't get justice. and And then people who are guilty and they get off, right? No, no, no. When Jesus judges, it's all going to be accurate. It is going to be thorough. Nothing's going to escape by and it is going to be just. In fact, we see this in Revelation chapter 20, the great white throne judgment says, and I saw the dead, the great and the small. By the way, that just means nobody is going to miss this one. Right? There's, there's nobody from the age. In fact, in the next verse, he talks about the sea gives up the dead. Hades gives up the dead. Every person who doesn't know Jesus is going to stand before the throne. And the books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. The dead were judged from the things written in the book according to their deeds. You know, today, we, uh, <laughs> it's kind of funny. You, you go to a sporting event or maybe you go to a, something where your kids are there. And if you look around, half of the people are living the moment and the other half are recording the moment. Have you noticed that? In fact, sometimes I look out here. Some of you got your cameras. I don't know what you're recording. You're taking pictures, right? But the point is, is that they're not really living in the moment. They're, they're recording the moment for later on. And we think it's all great and and then we can go post it and write and let other people enjoy it and all that kind of stuff. And yet somehow we think that the God of the universe who spoke space, time, matter into place, somehow doesn't have the ability to have recorded every thought, every word, every attitude. The Bible says he has. The books are open. Judgment's coming. And then the judgment will be eternal in the lake of fire. Just another couple verses down, if anyone's name is not found written in the the book of life, he's thrown in the lake of fire. Folks, we're, we're talking about eternity in a place called hell. I know today, again, hell, lake of fire, man, that's not popular. But it's true. We, we, we like to soften it. We like to irritate it. In fact, I have some people, you know, sometimes they'll come and say, but, oh, you know, that's a book of Revelation, and it uses all this figurative language. That's just figurative. And I'm going, well, I hope not. And they go, well, Steve, that's pretty unkind. Well, no, 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 you got to understand figurative language when the Bible uses figurative language, what it's trying to do is typically, especially in the book of Revelation, is trying to communicate a thought, an idea of what's going to happen that's just hard for us to get our mind around. It is so bad. It is so beyond our scope that the, the only thing you can do is try to give us a little bit of a picture that we might be able to wrap our heads around of how bad it's going to be. And if, when talking about the punishment piece, the judgment piece, if it, it, the best they could come up with was you and I swimming in a lake, almost always drowning, but never quite drowning, that is a lake of fire, and that's what he had to come up with. I'd, I would hate to think about how bad it really is, but that's what the Bible says. The Bible says that is the end of all people whose name is not written in the book. The people, and see, the point is, is that that's why when you get to the judgment, you have justice, you have thoroughness, but at that point you don't have mercy because that's not the day of mercy. That is the day of judgment. Today is the day of mercy that's why the Bible says today's the day of salvation. Jesus came and died on the cross because that was the end of all of us, that's what we deserve. But Jesus came and bore our sins and bore that punishment for us so that we could be forgiven. And now he stands at the door of your heart and he tugs and he knocks. And some of you maybe have been coming and you've been hearing the truth. Or you've been watching online and, and you just keep thinking, not today, not today, not today. I'll do it tomorrow. But, folk, none of us are promised tomorrow. There's not a one of us that is guaranteed that 24 hours from today we're going to be here the writer of Hebrews says a appointed in a man once to die and then the judgment. Today is the day of mercy. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of grace. Today is the day that if you don't know Jesus, you need to put your faith and trust in him. If not, this is the judgment you're going to face. I had somebody ask me after one service, do you think there will be different degrees of punishment in hell? And I, I do. I think this whole idea that, that our record, you know, God is just. And so not everybody will be punished to the same level, but it will all be horrendous. That's why Peter says, and there's salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. Folks, that, that's the mercy. That's the grace. Do you remember who Peter's talking to there? Peter's talking to the people who basically nailed Jesus to the cross. There was still mercy. There was still grace. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what's in your past. There's mercy and grace today if you'll come to Jesus. He'll forgive you but I don't want us to miss this. Verse 15, to execute judgment upon all. Now, all is a pretty encompassing word, right? All. And then he says, uh, bringing judgment upon all the ungodly. So, you know, we've talked about them and most of us know Jesus, right? And we're sitting there going, man, glad I'm going to heaven, right? Glad my sins are forgiven. Glad that I won't face that judgment. Well, that's true. And it is all good. But that does not mean that you and I, who know Jesus, who have had our sins forgiven, who are part of the family of God, who know we're going to heaven, who have the promise to be absent from this body, is to be present with the Lord, that we're not going to face judgment. He says all. And the truth is, that we are going to face judgment even as believers. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, for we must all, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now you've got to understand the context, the context of this verse. You remember Paul saying to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It's like two verses before this. Do you remember Paul talking about how we know that if this house is torn down, we have a building of God not made with hands? He's talking to believers here. And what he's saying is, hey, we all must stand and give an account. As Christians, sometimes we forget that. We think, man, I'm saved. My sins are forgiven, man. It's just... uh not gonna stand before no, no, no. We are. In fact, Peter puts it like this in 1 Peter 4. He says, For it is time for judgment to begin, and it begins with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will the outcome of those who do not obey? So he says, Really? Well, I thought my sins were forgiven. Yeah, they are. I, I thought I knew for sure I'm going to heaven. Yeah? You 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 do. You know Jesus. Well, what's the judgment about? Well, the judgment is not about punishment. The judgment's not about whether I'm going to hell or to heaven. The judgment is about reward. Uh, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat is an interesting word in the Greek. It's the words bima, And it kind of ties into like the Olympic Games where the judges would sit up on this podium and they would watch and they would reward those who ran the best. And that's what what, what Paul's saying here, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. You and I are going to stand and give an account for our life. Now, what's he looking for? I wish I had a boatload of time. I don't. Let me just really quickly, as best I understand, here are the three major things. First of all, our works, our deeds, did they align with God's truth? Did we, as the children of God, walk the way he told us to walk? We have been given what his desire is for us, how he wants us to live, how he wants us to to act and, and to serve and to live on mission. Did we do that? Secondly, our stewardship. Every one of us, every one of us has been given time. We've been given talents. We've been given treasure. None of it really belongs to us, right? Because none of us know how much time we have. We didn't choose our talents. It all comes from the hand of the Lord. It belongs to Him. We're here to manage it. That's the word stewardship. Did, did we steward it well? Did we invest it the way He wanted Did we spend our time doing the things that we're honoring to Him? Did we, did we invest our talents in, into others? And then finally, the motive. Uh, that's an interesting verse. Don't judge anything before the time. For when Jesus is revealed, he'll bring the light, the hidden secrets of, of men's hearts. Okay? Did we love Jesus with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? What's the first and greatest commandment? Do we passionately follow after Christ? And for those who ran well, for those who, who, who served after the Lord, to followed after him, there's great reward. You know, my dad used to put it like this. He says, you know, it's the greatest gig in the world. He saves you for nothing, and then he pays you for everything you do for him, right? It's great. We get to stand. We get to give an account. And for those that have run well, for those that have been faithful, there is reward. And sometimes people say, well, what about my sin? I mean, I thought my sin was forgiven. I thought my sin had been washed away, never to be remembered again. And you're correct. I don't believe when we stand there that he's going to pull up our, our sin, except in this sense. If my sin keeps me from wholly following after the Lord, if my sin keeps me from investing my time, talent, and treasure, if my sin keeps me from following the Word of God, then it's going to have an effect on that day. Does that make sense? It, it's in a sense forgiven, but, but when I allow the enemy to get a foothold in my life and to, to begin to drive my life, life away from the Lord... It takes me on a different path. If I, you know, none of us are perfect, but if when I sin and I fall, I repent, I turn back, I get back up on my feet, man, then then that's then, then great. But so often what we do is we let it come in. We let it begin to affect our lives. Jesus isn't the number one passion of our life, you know. We got this little thing and it takes us off and now we don't live the way he calls us to live. In that sense, our sin is going to affect us that judgment and that's why that's why we got to remember that how we live today matters matters counts you, you know it's not a matter that hey I've been forgiven so I'm going to sit here and twiddle my thumbs and do my own thing and live my own way the roll's called up yonder. No, no, we're going to stand and give an account. And again, it's not about whether we get to heaven or not. That's already been settled. It's not about punishment, but it's about reward and standing before Jesus, the King of the universe, and it will be just and it will be thorough. And for some of us to go, man, well, ugh. you know, we, we look back on yesterday with regret. But here's the great thing. I can't fix yesterday. What I can do is I can confess it, right? And I can repent and I can say today because I have today. Do you remember the story that Jesus told the parable? It's in Matthew 21. I went and looked it up. Matthew 21, he talks about the man who had two sons and he called them to go work in his vineyard. The first son says, oh yeah, I'll go. Didn't go. The other one said, I'm not going to go. He was rebellious. I'm not going to help you. But as the day wore on, he kind of felt guilty. He went in and he started work. Do you remember which son was praised and which son was honored and which son Jesus said was, was faithful? Folks, you and I can't fix yesterday, but we can fix today. We have today. We have tomorrow. That's why Jesus never tires of our new beginnings today we can walk with Jesus. And Jesus is, is both merciful and fair and loving. And that's what he desires. To today I can walk with Jesus. Tomorrow I walk with Jesus. I think that's why Paul says, forgetting what lies behind. Pressing forward to the things that go before. I press on toward the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, right? I can't do anything about yesterday, but I can do something about today. I'm going to stand before Jesus. The way you and I live today, it matters, And it doesn't just matter in our lives, and it doesn't just matter, but just think about the people that he's called us to live and share Jesus with. Those neighbors across the street, those people that we work with, you know, apart from Jesus, they're also gonna face judgment. But their judgment will end them in a lake of fire. Folk, the way we live matters. Follow Jesus. Walk with Jesus. Forget what lies behind. Move forward. It brings great, great reward.